Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at phoebe.substack.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Rachel Omondi, host of The Cutting Room Floor. You might have been following Rachel's podcast in which she mostly interviews fashion industry insiders and icons since its inception in 2018. Or you might have heard of Rachel just recently after a clip from her January 2024 interview with Yasin Bey, aka Mostef, went very, very viral. Either way, Rachel is a thinker and interviewer to have on your radar. Not just because she's one of the sharpest, most astute podcast hosts out there right now, in my opinion, but also because her entire approach to the business of content creation is worth taking notes on. We spoke about the art of the interview, the metrics of visibility, and why she only argues with people if they're paying her. I hope you enjoy the interview. And we're rolling. Good morning. Good morning. Get ready ready with me. I know, right? Listeners, I'm doing my makeup while I'm... Oh, sorry. Oh, wow. There there we are. (laughs) It's funny. You're listening to my podcast. I'm listening to your podcast. It's very meta. (laughs) I'm just listening to Juliana's episode. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Because she was on your your podcast, of course, Juliana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening to what you guys were saying, and I was like, I can relate to this so much. Which part of it? Uh, Just how you guys don't really see the point in Fashion Week anymore. I feel like I have to choose my words carefully because so many of my friends work in fashion and I want to be respectful. And obviously you run a, uh, ostensibly a fashion podcast, although I was going to ask you about how much you even really see it as like a fashion industry podcast anymore. Cause to me it's, it goes in so many different directions, but yeah, fashion week, I'm, I guess, especially in like the context of what's happening right in this moment globally, I'm like, guys, this is absurd. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, I get it. I have a lot of, I, well, I know a lot of people that work in fashion also, but, but they know too. It's not like it's any secret. They know. I don't, I don't think I know anyone who's like properly drinking the Kool-Aid that's like over the age of 21. Right. Good point. Yeah, good point. Exactly. And that's why I'm like, Phoebe, keep your opinions to yourself because my friends who work in fashion are super smart and it's not like, you know, they, ha- the, these realizations haven't come to them. But even so, I guess, I don't know, it just feels a bit, just a bit obscene obscene but then I think about that um clip in the devil wears Prada where she tries where um, Miranda Priestley shuts her down for sort of being dismissive of fashion and like even though that's such a vapid reference it goes in my head I'm like Phoebe fashion is an incredibly important industry like whatever your thoughts are on it you know it is at the end of the day I still love fashion I wouldn't you know be here covering it talking to people in this space if I didn't I think it's like capitalism that makes it that's like kind of the rain on the parade um, and like the incentives of capitalism is what makes it a bit, you know, of a drag. But um, but as far as like the craftsmanship of it and the anthropology and the documentation and the like cultural, you know, navigation tool like of, of what it is, it's amazing. It's like music. It's like cooking. It's- totally. And, and also the other reason I try not to spout off about it too much is because I don't... Um, I'm aware that I don't really understand and appreciate it as an art form because it just doesn't, it's never truly resonated with me. So like all of that somewhat goes over my head or it certainly doesn't move me. And I know that's such a 
you know, that's it. That's the key bit of it. Oh, really? Wait, so then what part of it do you like? Oh, I wouldn't, I really am not like a fashion girly. I'm really not. It's, uh, and I'm surrounded by fashion girlies, but I'm just, I mean, I like nice clothes, of course. And like, I try to look half decent and I'm not saying I like, I'm thoughtless about what I wear or buy, but yeah, there's a missing link for me. I'm just like, I don't get it. It doesn't move me. That's so interesting. Cause I, I guess because I just consider you to be so stylish. I'm like, oh yeah, she likes part of the fashion, you know, crowd, but I guess I do know what you mean. That's kind of how I am about fine art. I'm like, I don't like going to museums really. Cause I'm like, I don't really get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm fashion adjacent. I'm not, I'm not. Um, and when my friends talk about like, like the passion that it brings up for them, I'm just, I, we're, we're on different planets. <laughs> I love that actually. Yeah. I mean, I've just accepted it about myself now, you know, it's been quite liberating actually. Um, so as I said, I was like, you know, I've been, I've been deep diving on all, all your content and like, I feel like I've been having a parasocial conversation with you in my head for <laughs> the last couple of weeks because, um, you know, I haven't seen you IRL for a, a long time. The last time I saw you was, uh, we were both living in Bed-Stuy. Obviously, I don't live there anymore. I don't know if you do, but um, it feels like a, a, a lifetime ago. It was probably pre, would have been pre-pandemic. Yeah, it feels like a version of myself that I don't even know her. Like <laughs> I do. I do know her because obviously she is me, but I hear you. It feels like a million years ago to me. And it was just like, like you said, a few years ago. It was just a few years ago, but a lot of shit has changed. Um, but then equally, I feel like there'll be people listening to my podcast and obviously people who've come to your podcast in the last few weeks who are newly familiar with you as well. So it's kind of like an interesting, maybe feels like an interesting moment since, since I reached out to you and today, you know, you've had this big viral moment with your Yasin Bey interview, which I'll just say straight off the bat, everyone should subscribe to Rachel's Patreon to listen to that interview in full because it's it's definitely worth the subscriber fee. It's really such a rich and interesting interview. But actually what I wanted to jump in, and I'm just going to jump in because I know you can handle people who jump in, is talking to you about what you positioned as a rant that you posted yesterday. And I thought was like really cut to the crux of what I find so interesting about what you're doing. As I said, I'm as a self-admitted, not such a fashion girly, the thing that I'm so fascinated about with your podcast and the way you position it is actually like what it says to me about the beginnings of, I think what I hope will be like a tidal shift with the way that people think about creating, sharing content, positioning themselves online, visibility, navigating cancel culture. Like I think you're hitting a lot of, you're hitting a lot of bases there with the way that you are putting your work out there. So without sort of like spilling every, you know, reading out a transcript of what you were saying yesterday and then a voice note that you shared, because that's what there's, that's what the paywall's for guys. <laughs> um, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you were saying about why, because you, I'd sent you some questions last week asking a little, you know, in the, my stated my intention to talk to you a little bit about your decision to not share any of your podcasts in their entirety publicly all of it is behind a paywall from what I understand, aside from the little clips that you circulate. Um, you've only just started doing YouTube. So even that level of access is quite new. And yeah, to me, I was like, wow, this is really brave. And then I listened to you sort of like break it down a little bit. And I was like, it, it made so much sense to me. So 
instead of paraphrasing what you said, would you be would you be willing to sort of share a little bit of your philosophy? Yeah, of course. Um, first of all, thank you for saying that, and thank you for being a subscriber, and thank you for listening or caring or you know promoting it because I really do love what I do, and I really do hope that people listen, and I really do try to create something of value, um, uh, of great value. So my thing is, I always hope that people get more than they paid for. I've always just felt like that's a really good business model, no matter what it is. Um, It gets people coming back, whether it's a brand and you're like, no, the clothes are actually really reasonably priced, you know, for what you're getting or a restaurant or whatever it is. So that's always the goal. Um, but I guess in the, the rant that you're describing that I posted yesterday. You called it a rant, not me. I just want to clarify that because I thought it was far from a rant. You said it's giving rant. And I was like, this is not giving rant at all. This is giving like crystal clear cultural <laughs> um, <laughs> assessment. That's true. Those were my words, not Phoebe's. But um, I think I said that because I just like when you kind of have something that's like passionate on your heart and you're like, you know what? And I didn't have my equipment with me. So I did it on the go, like on my phone, on voice notes, which is not normally how I publish content. So it felt a little haphazard. But um, yeah, the premise of it was we did this episode of season five. So season two of season five was most deaf. Um, clips from that went viral and the full interview, the full two hour interview is behind a paywall, um, for $6 a month. So we do episodes every week and four episodes a month. And I was seeing a lot of comments of people who were saying this should have been published on YouTube. This should be free. Why does she want people to go behind a paywall? She shot herself in the foot. Um, This could have 50 million views, especially coming off of like the Cat Williams interview. And I saw those comments and I was inspired to rant about it because I 100% disagree. And uh, the premise of that rant yesterday was just that like I put a value on the work that I'm creating, the content that I'm creating, and I have no incentive to publish any of it for free. Um, it's my work, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, like a lot of things, when people are used to getting them for free, they do not value it. You know, it goes across the board. That goes for uh, anything, really. <laughs> and I, and I put a value on my work. I, I, spend the time researching, you know, we flew to Barcelona to interview him. That's plane tickets. I have two cameramen with me. I have an editor. They have to have a hotel. They have to sleep somewhere, you know, yeah, it's a production. It's not, um, like some silly girl making, you know, uh, content on the internet. Um, I don't have an agent. No one is plugging me with half of the people that come on the show. Almost all of them are personal relationships, not all of them, but a lot of them are, or, you know, so it really is like a grassroots production and I take a lot of pride in that and I have a lot of, and I spend, I have a lot of diligence with it. So to me, I have no incentive to post that for free. And it's also like a call to action. Like I want to ask people to respect my work and hopefully to get something out of it. 
Um, and if you want to unsubscribe, you're more than willing to do so. I saw it more like kind of like most deaf unplugged, like on a bar stool. Like if you want to hear him talk for two hours, you know, I'm the doorman and you have to come through me, pay your six bucks and you can hear him talk. And it also creates a little bit of safe space for the guests being behind a paywall that this is not for the general public where people can kind of pass by and like vomit their thoughts in the comment section all over your work without having any diligence or patience or context there's just this grabby sense of entitlement with content as it just swims past us so we all feel even myself in some ways that we have the right or like the again the entitlement to comment on it or digest it any way we want to and I just don't agree with that and you know, if you listen to the rant, I get into a lot of other reasons, monetary reasons why I don't publish content free. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone should do this. I, it's just like, it's just what's worked for me. Mm. And I think there'd be people who listen to this now who maybe have only, as I said, just discovered you through that clip going viral, who'd be like, oh, well, it's easy for you to say that you pay all your content because you've clearly got a big enough audience to um, support what you're doing with your paid subscribers, but your podcast, you've been doing it for like five years now, five coming into six year even maybe. And I'm, you know, to, not to make assumptions, but I'm assuming it wasn't like you weren't be able to afford to fly to Barcelona when you first started. It wasn't like it was, you know, self-supporting in the way that it is now. So to me, that's why it's interesting because again, I know you, you didn't always pay all your full podcast interviews because I listened to them years ago when transparency, I wasn't paying for them. So you must've had them publicly at some point. Um, Just to jump off the heels of what you said, that's also why I started charging for it because I did used to publish them for free. I used to publish them on Spotify and seasons one through three are still on Spotify, but I years of free content. You know, I feel like I earned the right to get behind a paywall. It didn't happen overnight. No, absolutely. And, and did you find when you put your paywall up that enough of your subscribers went with you that it was still sustainable? But you know, you find that when people you're used to feeding people free stuff for a long time, when you suddenly start saying, actually, no, you need to pay for this. Some people are like, I'm good, but I'm glad to hear that. It sounds like you've probably found a big enough supporter base that it's, it's still feasible for you. Yeah. And there are people who are like, yeah, I'm good. And to that, I say, bye. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't, what, what business owner wants patrons who don't want to pay? Right. Like if you don't want, you're more than welcome to not spend money here. That is your choice, you know? So when that definitely happens. And I think, um, that's something that like we as content creators or whatever the case, as self-determined people can't be afraid of, like we won't be for everybody and people don't have to spend time with you. So that's fine. There were definitely people who, um, like dropped off, like in the beginning or like it fluctuates a little bit, you know, people leave. People have different financial situations. Maybe they come back. A lot of them are young. Like $6 a month is inexpensive, but it's not nothing. Like it's a considerable amount of money. So I take that seriously also. Yeah, absolutely. No, totally. I mean, yeah, for sure. I think, again, what I find interesting in it is that to me, you articulated what I feel is a bigger wave that is coming where a lot of people, and I'd say particularly people of our generation, because I think we're at similar age, you know, we sort of launched our creative careers in a, in a moment when we did see people really like cash in on sharing free content and then being able to, 
you know, generate revenue off the back of brand partnerships or, you know, ad revenue or whatever the case, people made serious money doing that. Um, and there's still a lot of people making serious money doing that, but equally there's been a tide shift where people are starting to realize actually you can spend years creating reams of free content and you can get good numbers and you're still making very small, like dribbles of money. And it's definitely not enough to sustain yourself. So people are like, fuck, what do I do now? Hence the, you know, huge popularity of platforms like Substack, Patreon, you know, et cetera. And then in tandem with that, I think, and I don't know, this is what I'm interested to get your thoughts on, like what feels like the beginnings of the slow beginnings of a backlash to the ways that we've allowed ourselves and our talent and our work to sort of be um, profited on by massive tech platforms, which again, in your, in your voice note yesterday, you're like, why would we hand it over to them? Which I feel like perhaps with, you know, with Yassine Bey's generation was self-evident and then we really lost it. And maybe now we're going back to it, which is why it was so interesting to hear you two in conversation because it's like you're sharing an ideology and then there was like this big bit in between where people really lost it and now they're maybe coming back around. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I also feel like people of his generation had their arms tied behind their back a bit more. You know, back then when it came to traditional traditional media or traditional distribution, you did have gatekeepers that were kind of legit. You know, you had to go through the agencies, the major studios, but with the internet, yeah, I think that sense of authority has decentralized and people can self-publish. I'm interested. I'm just wondering if there's going to be now like a big wave of people who are just completely, who go back to completely, like, I, I don't get the sense that you're trying to get a, an insane Spotify deal. Like that doesn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like you're like, I'm interested to know what your sort of aspiration is with where you want to grow your your podcast, given that you're not looking for that brand endorsement, you're not necessarily looking for those 50 million YouTube hits every time. As you said yourself, like visibility is not a currency that you accept <laughs> in, your, you know, in the Bank of Rachel, it's like, I don't care about that. To elaborate on that, it's not that, um, like, I'm scared of being visible, full stop. So for me, there's nothing exciting or attractive about like being super famous. I think to me, it's a downside of something else. It's like, it's, uh, you know, the nature of the beast when you're really skilled at something. A lot of people, especially in the past, they became famous like by accident. And you can see the turmoil or disdain that a lot of celebrities had with that, whether it was like Kurt Cobain or Amy Winehouse, not everybody loved that. So I'm more, um, even though I'm extroverted and all the things, I'm more in that camp. However, I'm uh, okay with it to a certain extent if I'm like get, getting paid for it, like reaping the benefits for it. I, I think now with social media, people are like into this idea of being famous just because, which is part of like reality TV and the Kardashians. It's just like, just be visible, just to be visible, which I think is exploitive. It's like, why would you want to be visible if you didn't have to be, you know, because it opens the door for so much scrutiny. So that's what I was saying about that. As far as like what my ambitions are, um, my ambitions are, it's not that I'm against having like a big brand deal or, well, we're not, I was going to wipe this but I'm like, we're not using video anyway. Um, it's not that I'm against having like a brand deal or, you know, a bigger check like we have in the past, but I want to do it on terms where we partner. I think a lot of times it feels like the brand is pillaging, like they're coming to take something from you. 
And so many artists, you know, how many like talented ruins do we know? Like so many artists feel exploited. They feel negatively about their experiences, whether it be in Hollywood or the music business. And there is something really unethical about someone taking a majority of your earnings. Like that's, that's the issue I have. It's not so much that I would partner. It's just like, you're not going to rape me. Like, that's not what we're doing here, you know? And I think a lot of times uh, people, as I said in the voice note, a lot of us like give all of our power away, all of it, because we assume that someone else knows more or has more. And I just, I just don't think that's true. Like it's, it's a slippery slope, but my goal is to like grow the audience um, on my own terms and to create more leverage for myself when I do end up partnering with like a bigger entity. Like I've had people reach out and say like, we love your podcast. Do you want to bring over to this network? And to be completely honest, financially, they can't match me. You know, like the, the podcasting business is not that lucrative. It, well, it can be, as we've seen with like Call Her Daddy and you know, uh, Joe Rogan, it can be, those are unicorns, but in, in the general sense, like going to dear media or whatever, um, you're not like raking in millions of dollars as a podcast. Right. So it's like, as far as salary goes, the deals that I've been offered to me, they're like, unless you can match what I'm making on my own platform, I have no reason to get off and they can't. So that's why it seems like I'm like, sometimes it seems like, Oh, is Rachel still doing her little podcast on Patreon? And I'm like, LOL, like you're, you're, you don't know what's going on. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what your numbers are, but I seen, I remember a long time ago seeing Red Scare's numbers and I was like, damn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, I'm not doing Red Scare numbers. I hope to, they're doing amazing. I don't, I've, um, I've completely zoned out of Red Scare, but the last time I checked, which was again, a while ago, and I don't know if it's gotten better or worse, it's probably fluctuated, as you said, as it happens, but I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, you know saying? And I'm definitely not doing red scare numbers. I hope to get there. Um, but, you know, do that math. Like, what, what sense would it make to leave? And you can talk directly. I have the CSV. I know their data. I know who they are. I know, you know, so it's like, why would I leave to go to it doesn't make sense. So I think when it comes to, um, you know, partnerships, whether it's Spotify or whatever, it's like they would have to offer me an incredibly attractive deal. And I doubt that they would. They don't really like their talent looking under the hood of like the metrics, which is another big problem. Yeah. And and, and when you say it that way, it kind of sounds self-evident, but I do think we're coming out of this sort of like period of mass delusion where it seemed like, you know, all you had to do is make yourself as attractive as possible to a brand partnership and then take like whatever they threw at you within reason, you know, and anything they threw at you was like, and I remember that shift happening because I remember when I was first on Instagram and first like working and sort of you know, actually there was a period in the beginning where the idea of like doing something sponsored was a bit tacky and then that just changed so quickly. And then it was like as many sponsorships as possible, as many sponsored Instagram posts as possible, like literally all ethics, all standards went out the window pretty much. And everyone was like, fine, cool for you. Just get, get the check. Like we, we see what you're doing, respect. And as I said, I feel like now people are like, oh, wait a minute, like, oh, I've just like signed all my content over or I've aligned with a brand that I don't, um, you know, that I don't align with politically, emotionally, whatever it is. And then also just to, you know, go back to like what I know has happened with your podcast, you've ex- exposed yourself to an audience 
that then has the, the you know, cause I know you had um, a moment in, I think it was 2021 where you got a lot of backlash, shall we say for a, a interview you did with Leandra Medine of Man Repeller. And I think the exposure to online trolling culture and is so vicious now. And like everyone's sort of just waiting to get canceled for whatever it is that they're going to get canceled for. Like it makes sense to people will seek to build some sort of protection for themselves while still sharing their work, which is another thing that you can achieve by like owning it and sharing it in the way that you want to. Yeah, I think that getting backlash from that particular episode back in 2021 was a huge catalyst for me wanting to have a paywall. And it was that summer that I got on Patreon because I fully stood by the episode that I put out. We spent so much time on that episode. We spent months on that episode. We reviewed it over and over and over, me and the editor. Um, we knew it would be controversial and there was no part, there was not a single part of that episode where I didn't know what I was saying, you know, and, and we pressed publish, you know, and it was one of those times where you're like nervous pressing publish, you know? And so I think when so many people reacted to it negatively, I felt like that was when I realized the value of ownership. Like I can't, because it got like 300,000 downloads in the first three days. You know, I was like, I can't believe I let this go viral and I didn't see anything from it. And people are yelling at me, you know? So I was like, the next time this happens, you will be behind a paywall in order to yell, scream, whatever. I'll be profiting off of this consumption of my content. You'll be paying to yell at me. You won't just have access to do that, you know? That must have been quite emotionally upsetting for you. How did you feel with that on like a personal level? I wouldn't say it was emotionally upsetting, because like I said, I really stood by what we published, but it was very anxiety inducing. You know, it wasn't like I was like sad or regretful, but I think um, that much energy pouring, being, you know, sent to you via, and this is how you know energy is real. Cause it's like, these people are not in front of me. Um, that felt very like a bit suffocating, like, and it lasted like weeks, you know, so it wasn't that long, but it was like, it was a very interesting experience. I would say that, that, that kind of, I do feel for people now in a way where like, when I feel like they're getting that online, because I can, I remember that feeling and it is loud and it does make you have that little bit of like cold sweat. You're like, <gasps> but, but I still was like, this is what I get. Cause I'm not taking it back. <laughs> and also you like leveraged it into the, you know, you use that insight to sort of shift your entire business model, which is the best thing you really could have done with that moment in your life. Right. Like you applied the lessons of it. Yeah. It was a learning for sure. So just to rewind a little bit, I think when I first met you, you, I would have, I probably described you as a designer to someone else. That was how I understood you. <laughs> I knew of you. Um, you had your own brand, which was your last name from what, is that correct? Amandi? That was the yep. Amandi. It was a clothing brand, which we had from, gosh, I think like 2013 to 2020 is when I dissolved it. Wow. That's a long time. I didn't realize you were doing it for that long. What was the impetus to dissolve it? Uh, a midlife crisis. Well, not really mid quarter, quarter life. I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere in between. So many things. And it's so crazy that it happened around COVID because COVID actually had nothing to do with it, but it kind of like coincided perfectly. It was just, and I don't know if you've ever gone through this, but it was just like a major vibe shift, like with my own, in my own personal life. Um, I just woke up one day and I was like, no, this isn't it. I'm I'm changing some things. <laughs> was that partly to do with the fact that you had 
developed the podcast and you perhaps were shifting how you saw yourself professionally like when you introduce yourself to people now and, and say what you do do you describe yourself as a interviewer or a podcaster or what it, what is it how is it today i am a full-time podcaster um in, the, in fashion media usually um but yeah i was a designer back then and i'm so grateful for that experience and that's what i studied that's what i went to school for um, and that's the industry I worked in before I even started my own brand. And uh, I feel like it was like business school. Like I feel like it was like four or five years of like making a ton of mistakes and wasting a ton of money. Um, and yeah, but it wasn't really about the business per se. I think I just had a self-reflective moment for myself personally. And that included the business. It was everything. It was like, I didn't like my friends. I didn't like my business manager. I didn't like the guy that I was seeing. I didn't like my apartment. I didn't like, I just didn't like anything. And so like, I just like liquidated everything. I was like, I'm starting over. I don't want any of this. And so, and then I left New York. I'm back now, obviously, but um, you go? wherever, just not New York. I didn't care. I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to figure some things out. And I went on like a, an amazing kind of like deep self-healing journey, whatever. But then... But when I left, COVID started like two months later. So I left right before COVID. Oh, wow. Um, like in January. And then... Were you back in New York when the pandemic started? No, my plan was to come back in March. Originally, I was like, I'll be gone for three months. And then March 13th, it all went down. So I was like, you know what? This is kind of perfect because I'm not ready anyway. So I just like traveled for two years. Like I was either at my dad's house. Like I put all my stuff in upstate New York. And then I had two suitcases and I went to my dad's and then I was just never at my dad's. I was just traveling all around and then I would go back there as a base and then I would travel and then I would go back home. And then eventually I was like, okay, I got to go get my stuff. I got to move back to New York. That must have been an incredible, incredible experience. Yeah, it was a definitely like an eat, pray, love moment. <laughs> and, and what were the major sort of insights that came to you in that time in reflection? Um. So many, honestly, so many, but I think a lot of the stuff that I realized was core stuff that I already knew as it tends to always be, you know, um, I think that's part of self-discovery. It's just like reminding yourself of what kind of what you already knew to be true in a way. Um, so a lot of it was that I think for me, the, all of it resulted in like doubling down, you know, it was like doubling down on myself, doubling down on my values, the things that I had always suspected anyway, but for some reason had been thrown off course or maybe like gaslit. And I don't mean by a certain person, just like by society or an industry, or maybe things aren't possible the way I think they are, or maybe they, you know, I just like a lot of doubt. I think it just removed a lot of doubt. And I was like able to like settle back into what I know to be true, you know, and had lost lost my way somehow. Do you mean in the sense of like what you feel your purpose is in you know, with your work or in, what, like, what do you mean by that? No, all of it. Like Phoebe, all of it. Like it, it's work, but it was also my personal, like I said, I didn't like everything felt wrong. Like I woke up one day and I was like, this is not, this is not, this is not it. Like, this is not, it. you know, it was everything. I didn't like the guy that I was dating. I didn't like the way he was treating me and I didn't like the way I went. And it wasn't a serious relationship. It was just like situationship bullshit. Um, I didn't like my friends, you know, or not so much my friends. It was like, I didn't like the people I was spending most of my time with. Um, and I look back and I would not have called any of them friends. Um, I didn't like the way that my work was going. So yes, that was part of it, but it was like not one thing. It was like, everything felt like you can do better, Rachel. This is not it. You're like, you're selling yourself short in so many ways. Um, and I think I was right because now 
I feel completely different. I feel like I have amazing friends who really have my back. Um, now I'm with someone who loves me and would do anything for me. And I'm obsessed with him. Now I like my work and it's actually starting to move and make progress. And I love my apartment. Like everything now just feels completely different than it did probably when we saw each other last, which would have been like 2019, 2018. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. It's flowing. It's flowing. Yeah, it's flowing now, but I had to like pump the brakes. No, but it's brave of you to do that because I think also in New York, particularly it's a city where you're so busy and you're so caught up and it's so noisy, like figuratively and literally that as exciting and fun and stimulating as it can be to live in New York, it is very hard to hear yourself think when you, you know, that little voice, you can suppress it for a long time is what I'm saying. You can really drown it out like for years slash indefinitely. And a lot of people are doing that there, you know, and just get caught up. Like you can really get caught up in New York and, and the, the metrics of success and power. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's thrilling in a way, like how, I don't know, like visceral the energy of the city is, but it, if you're really not grounded in yourself, you can just get swept up and like blown away like a little leaf in the wind. No, literally. And it's, uh, I want just deeper connections too. Like, I don't know like what your upbringing was like, but for me, I grew up in the Midwest and I had just like really good friends growing up. And then I moved to New York and I felt like I just met I just couldn't meet, I just couldn't make those deep connections like what I was used to. And, um, that took a toll on me for a long time after, after a long time. A hundred percent. I really relate to that because I think, you know, London is a city with (laughs) issues, but one thing that I love about it and is really kind of quite unanimous here is people have deep rooted, longstanding friendships. Of course, people have silly high P like fashion friendships as well. But you, it is really quite rare to meet people in this city who don't have friends that they've had for a really, really long time. And um, people tend, you know, I've had friends, I grew up in London, but even people who moved there here when they were like 18, 19 to study, you know, they'll have friends from that time. You tend to, you keep your friends around you for like decades and decades. Whereas in New York, it's like you've got a new crew to hang with every You've got your core friends maybe, but then you've also got like a new group seems to emerge every six to 12 months, you know? And Which is psychotic in my opinion. And I, <laughs> yeah. And I remember people like that who like seasonally, they were like, we're over you. And I'm like, bitch, what? Like, I don't even know why I was spending time with you. <laughs> like, And that's what I mean. Like I would get my feelings hurt for things that I already thought I was too good for to begin with. So I don't even know why I was entertaining certain things, you know? Yeah, totally. So when you were on this sort of journey of recalibration, like what were the tools you were using? Were you was there anything you were reading or how were you getting back to yourself in that way? Oh my god, this is getting so deep, but I'm here for it. Um <laughs> it's called deep ring, right? The podcast is called deep. Well, I guess I am particularly asking if that if that uh, not even just in that necessarily in that two year period, but like if there are any books or teachings or teachers that you have used throughout your life to, to stay in touch with the core of who you are? Um, 
I think at that time, at least, I was reading a lot of like spiritual self-help books. I hate to say self-help because that sounds so like... Spiritual guidance, let's call them that. Self-help to me sounds deranged. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it was like all the things like Eckhart Tolle. I read like whether it was like uh, New Earth, The Power of Now, um, Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, like Dispelling Watiko. Um, I read a lot of books on narcissism. Um, Why did you... Did you identify as an artist or you felt you dealt with a lot of narcissists? I felt like I uh, dealt dealt with, but, but also the more I studied it, the more I did see some of myself in that behavior. Like, I don't think it was, I don't think I was like a raging narcissist, but I think anyone who has an ego is on the spectrum, you know, which is all of us. Um, so it, it curtailed some of my own behaviors once I saw it like re- reflected back to me I was like mm, that's not cute but I think I was dealing with a lot of them more um and I was able to like identify and put a name on certain behaviors that I couldn't explain whether they were in my family or whether they were friendships any kind of relationship dating like I just really got a really clear understanding of what that set of behavior is at the psychological level so that was really helpful and I think actually to this day, I actually don't think that people really use that word very wisely because I see it more of like a psycho-spiritual illness. I see it more as like a psychological and spiritual um, illness, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but yeah, I like read like two really great books on that. One of them is called The Culture of Narcissism. The other is called Dispelling Wetiko or Wetiko. People say it differently, W-E-T-I-K-O. Um and what else did I read? I read so much stuff during that time. Um, a lot of just like, yeah, like I read dating books. I read relationship books. I read um, like The Atomic Habit by James Clear, like things that were about like productivity. I read a lot of health books, um, like about nutrition and like what we're putting in our body. I was just doing like run of the gamut wellness <laughs> always I think everyone was reading at that time because it was such a quiet time everyone was like reading books yeah are you still reading books not so much um yeah I'm always reading something uh you know like there's always a book that I'm in the process of I usually read on the train <clears throat> um I'm reading a book right now called what's it called I'm drawing a blank it's called never split the difference by Chris Voss <clears throat> you might find this interesting um especially as like a podcaster and interviewer it's called Never Split the Difference by this guy named Chris Voss. And he was for like, I want to say 20 years, a hostage negotiator for the FBI. And so he gives tips on how to negotiate using like empathy and active listening and targeted questions to like influence the outcome that you want. And it's called Never Split the Difference because uh, he, he basically warns against the downsides of compromise, like too much compromise. And I use it as a tool to learn really great soft skills to become a better interviewer. And I have learned a lot. And so like there's a large part of his book where he talks about active listening and, uh, you know, when you ask someone a question to not fill that, that dead space with words. You ask it, no matter how uncomfortable it is, and then you pull back and you let them sit with it. Um, because sometimes journalists, you know, we ask questions that are a little iffy. And I think when we appre- we kind of preemptively get anxious, like for the guest. And so he's like, don't split the difference. Wait. 
and like let them answer and like get the, it's a really, I think it's a really good book. It's a lot of soft skills, but it's like, I mean, if you were an FBI negotiator and you're freeing these hostages, you must know something. So for sure. And, and the sitting in the uncomfortable silence that will arise after you ask someone a question they perhaps don't really want to answer. But then if you just let that silence ride out, they're invariably going to say something that is often pretty, um, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or they'll feel uncomfortable with your comfort in the silence. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, ever since I've been listening to your interviews, I've been impressed by your ability to ask uncomfortable questions. Like that seems to be, I'm sure you've done a lot of work to develop your interview skills over the last few years and practice always helps, of course, but is that something when you started interviewing people, you were like, no, this is important to me that I'm going to be someone who asks people uncomfortable questions? Um, yes, I guess, but I didn't mean to. It's just who I am. And I think <laughs> it's just who I am. If anything, I've learned how to do it more softly. I think when I was younger, I was too abrasive and I was kind of like a bull in a China, sh- China shop. And like even being in art school, even being the youngest child, like being like, well, no, why? Well, explain it to me. Well, why can't we go? Like, I just, I was really trying to understand, but I think for others, it came off as like too aggressive. And, um, and then also me not knowing that that's how other people were experiencing me. So I think like doing that work, you know, that I did during like that self-healing time or like being reflective and really spending time with people that I trusted to tell me the truth and stuff like that. If anything, asking the uncomfortable stuff is like my normal state of being. That's like my homeostasis. (laughs) But I've learned how to um, like be softer in the way I'm asking it and not... Yeah, not be so harsh, but that part comes natural. I just want to make the guest to feel comfortable rather than on. You say you've been like that since you were a child. Do you think it's quite rare in our culture for women to feel that they can be abrasive, can ask on, again, you, you, you've clarified that you didn't necessarily, you weren't necessarily conscious of the fact that you are direct or you were direct when you were younger, but even so the, the world usually bashes that out of you as a young girl, um, you know, what do you think it was? Is it like your family was sort of permissive with you being like that or that enabled that to continue? Um, well, I feel like I'm a black girl, so we're already branded as direct. You know what I mean? I think for black women, what's more uncommon is being soft and being meek, you know? So that I think that's maybe part of the reason why there wasn't that much backlash because it was kind of like, well, she's black and that's how black girls act. I don't know. I'm just guessing. No, I don't know. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I, yeah of course that's... It's an it's an unfair branding in many instances, but I suppose if you feel naturally that you, you know, want to be direct, then you might as well lean into it, I guess. And I'm just saying that right now, I've never really thought about it deeply other than right now. So that's just maybe what happened. I have no idea. Also, I didn't have a mother. I was raised by my dad. So I think if there had been a woman in the house, she might have been the one to be like, hold on, chill. You know, Um, women don't do that. We need to be late. Like I never had any of that. So maybe that's why. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe it's because I'm the youngest and I don't know about you, but like in my household, we were all girls, but I was the youngest. So I always felt this need to like yell in order to be seen or to be heard or you were going to get stomped over or like no one listens to you, you know, Um, like whether it's at the dinner table or in the car or on vacation, I always had this feeling of like, 
wait, hello, listen to me, wait for me, like, don't go without me, like, hello, you know, and everyone's just carrying on, and so if you don't scream, it's like you just won't get heard, that's, you know, so... I don't know. It could have been a number of all those things. I mean, I'm glad it didn't get bashed out of you. That's why I say like, what did, what I'm, what are the factors that you think enabled that to continue? Because I wish more young women felt that they could, you know, not have to modify every word that comes out of their mouths and every like, I feel like most women have this sort of deep internal conditioning of constantly doing what they can to make the other person feel more comfortable, not, you know, and it, and it runs so deep that you, you do it in an unconscious way. It's not even necessarily even about what you're saying. It's about how you act, how you make yourself small in so many environments. I can only imagine how that insidious messaging goes deeper when you're a black woman, like the pressures to shrink yourself. Um, so yeah, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, this seems like some good pairing or something is something went right that you felt confident enough to be, to take up that space. Cause it, it is an energetic space to, to be like, I'm just going to say what I want to say. So <laughs> I know, I know. It's really true. And I don't think I realized how many women do internalize that until I started to get older. Um, and yeah, it's true. I don't know. I don't know why I'm like that. I don't know why we are the way we are. Like some of it's nurture and then some of it's just like, that's just how they come out of the womb. You know, I don't know. No, no. Yeah. Sorry to ask you to account for it. I'm just, uh, it, it's, it's rare. It's rare and it's refreshing, And but it's what makes you a great interviewer and you are a great interviewer. And it's rare to find a great interviewer. I mean, I listen to some huge podcasts and I'm like, you're terrible interviewing. And I don't say that because I think I'm an amazing interviewer, but I know a good interview when I hear one. And it's kind of incredible to me how big podcasting has become and obviously interviewing being the the main sort of component of it and how few people are actually good at doing an interview. Are there any interviewers that you like, like or listen to or admire and sort of take little tidbits of their approach? Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say the, the big name ones like Oprah or Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters was really wild. And if you go back and watch some of her old interviews, um, but then like Charlemagne the God, I, he's toned it down a lot, but he has a way of in, interviewing that I don't know if people notice. And I try to borrow some of it, which is that he's really lean with his questions. Whereas I um, tend to like preface a lot of my questions where he just asks them. So I try to work on that a bit. Um, that's where your conditioning has has come in, like feeling need, the need to pad out maybe a little bit. That's where men don't, men don't, they just say what they want to say. Totally. Men don't do that. So that's been interesting. Um, uh, it, well, you know what it is? It's just been like, it's been like, it, it's like podcasting was really interesting because like you said, the space has gotten really big. And it seems like anyone can just do it because we can. And that's the beauty of it, that there's a very low barrier to entry. But I've really been working at it. Like, so I'm really proud and grateful that you compliment me in that way and say I'm a great interviewer because it's like a soft skill that I've really been trying to hone in on and um, and trying to perfect it. It's like not me just like getting out of mic and talking to people. I really am. I'm really conscious of a lot of things and like the book that I'm reading like I've been trying to learn how to be better at it um so I really do appreciate that if it's if it's resonating because if you go back and listen to season one it's a different show like it did not sound the way it sounds now um but I've learned a lot of things from other people though too like there's journalists that I love but I think okay so now I'm thinking about a bunch of different things but I'll try to streamline them. 
one, I've always been interested. This kind of goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of like, like where I've had the gumption to just say what I've felt. Um, I've always been interested in that type of character when I look back on it. Like one of the questions you sent was like, what kind of books did I read growing up? And I was actually reflecting on that last night. And I was thinking like, wow, I was, I was reading like Beverly Cleary, Ramona stories, or um, like Hillary Knight's Eloise at the Plaza, or Harriet the Spy, or Judy Bloom. Like I was always reading, you know, The Coldest Winter Ever. Like I, I realized I was always interested in women that were like a little bit like ornery and mischievous and self-determined and like investigative. I, I look back now and I'm like, I always liked the girl that was getting into trouble, you know, even in, even in the elementary literature level, I was still interested in the curious girl who's like doing something she shouldn't be doing or asking too many questions. Um, and I think I feel the same way about journalism now, like the things, the interviews that I've always been the most attracted to, um, because when I was working as a designer, I used to be sewing all the time and I used to have headphones in and I would just listen to interviews all day long. Like if anybody had an interview, I had heard it before. Um, and so as far as like journalists, you know, broadcast journalism now is a bit iffy because it can feel really performance based, but, um, like David Carr who passed away, I think almost 10 years ago, but he was at the New York times covering media. He's like a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You know, like the investigative journalist, the person who's going to kind of take risks, the person that might risk their life, the person who might get killed by the embassy, like the person who like, you know, probably shouldn't maybe be there or to reveal this would be insane. That's the kind of stuff I like is like when it's provocative, like um, not so much reporting because I don't find reporting to be high stakes per se. Um, it's, it's the journalism and like the documenting and the seeking of truth that I find to be interesting. And then in terms of, um, you know, Jamal, or Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered uh, a few years back, um, allegedly, but most likely, um, by, because of the way he was writing and critiquing the Saudi Arabian government. Um, none of the journalism I do is that hard hitting at all, but that is what I'm attracted to or like those risk takers. And then the other thing I was going to say is I've gotten a lot of really good advice in this journey and I like hold it very near and dear to my heart. I can remember when certain people have said certain things to me, like for example, Terry Agins, I interviewed her in season three. She was covering fashion at the Wall Street Journal for 20 years by herself, black woman from Kansas City. Um, when no one was covering that beat, the only publication doing so was WWD. And I remember she loved the interview I did with her. And then she started listening to my interviews afterwards. And she would email me after my interviews and tell me things I did wrong. And she kind of like volunteered in a way to be this mentor. She was like, I, I watched your interview with Mickey Drexler. You didn't ask him this. That was actually incorrect. And next time when you ask about this, make sure you include the figure, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, I didn't ask for this email, but I appreciate it because um, I really did appreciate it. And she told me once, you can't argue with the driver while you're still in the cab. And I thought that was so poignant, meaning when you when you want to get a good interview, you can't ha you cannot sit down with somebody who's still in it. They have to be somewhat removed from it to be able to really share. Like if they're still 
you know, in the industry, they're, they're going to be too scared to like ruin their setup. You know, you can't argue with the driver when you're still in the cab. You've got to get, you've got to cuss out the driver when you get out of the cab, you know, otherwise he's still in control of your life. So she was like, find people who are out of the cab who've gotten out and they can talk. And so I thought that was really good advice. That's um, great advice. Yeah. And so you, there's you like need a little buffer to reflect. Otherwise you can't. I mean, I, people have asked me about things that I've been in the middle of and my answers have been appalling because I haven't processed them. Like if I'd spoken to you midway through your Eat, Pray, Love adventure, I don't think you would have been able to talk about it with the insight that you did today. Um, and that goes for anything, any creative period, any business, you know, good advice. Really good advice. So I think there's nuggets that I've gotten along the way that have made me um, hopefully made me better at it. Definitely made you better at it. If you don't mind me saying, like it, you can hear the the progression, the interview with Yasin Bey is, is great. I mean, he's a great subject, I have to say also. like, But that's part of it too, is, you know, we both know people who do make great work or could be really interesting in person, but we, you know they're not going to make for a good guest you know like verbal articulation is just not something that is natural to a lot of people and that's fine it doesn't mean that they're not intelligent or they don't you know have interesting things to say it's just on the spot not everyone can deliver how do you think about choosing your guests for the cutting room floor well up until now a lot of them have chosen me and it's been a lot of inbound stuff this is probably the first year that we'll be able to really target who we want to speak to I've pitched maybe two people ever. Like most of us people wow. who come Wow, that's impressive. I know. Um, so and I, I don't say that to like brag, but because we were only doing them bi-weekly, like every other week it, up until now, like for four years, it was just every other week. So it gets filled up quickly. It wasn't like we were shooting them out. Um, but there is some sense of vetting that still happens. Like we've definitely said no. Um, and sometimes people will surprise you. Sometimes you think you, you can have a prejudice like, well, that person is not interesting or because of their brand or whatever the reason, but they might be super interesting. And you don't really know that unless you do the pre-interview, which we always do pre-interviews. So there's no single person I've entered, I've ever interviewed where that was the first time I met them. And, um, there's always been some kind of rapport building before, um, I've never done a virtual interview. It's always been in person. If that means we have to wait seven months or wait a year, then I'll wait. It is a lot more work, but, um, but back in the day, journalists used to do that often. Like you would see a magazine cover from like 2001. The interviewer was like, if you read the article, it was like the first time Gwyneth and I met, we were on set of her new movie. The first time we hung out. No, absolutely. And that was something I was thinking about when you were talking about sort of all these like iconic interviews from time, times gone by both in the U S and the UK, like there were people doing interviews in the 60s, 70s, even 80s. Like if you go back and look at those interviewers, incredible. Like their skills as interviewers have completely been lost in, in for the large part, at least in like um, sort of mass media. It's interesting because now we're seeing these skills reemerge in podcasting to some extent. But like, I don't, if, don't, if you've ever read the Playboy interviews, like, you know, play, Playboy were publishing like, incredible interviews in like the 60s and 70s i'll send you some you can buy a lot of them as well as books but but that's because playboy was the highest paying magazine in the u.s for a long time so these people had time they were given months and they were able to deliver the goods i mean 
yeah, if I get that we don't have that much time anymore, but like it does make a difference in the interview and it helps me to know what we should talk about and what we should skim over. You know, I try to research the guests as much as I can um, because, you know, to me, like the creme de la creme of compliments is when you're in an interview and you ask the guest something and they go, that's a really good question. And you kind of like stump them for a second. It's like, oh, yes. Like you feel victorious because I'm asking them, especially for someone who's done a lot of press, you know, I'm asking them something they've never been asked before, or they say something like, whoa, you did your research. Like those things are really gratifying to me. Um, but in terms of like the types of people I want to interview, uh, I still want to interview a lot of people in fashion. I'm not done in this space. Cause I really feel like fashion is like the Marvel cinematic universe. Like there are so many characters and so many brands and there's people who've been in this space for you and there's so many untold stories. So we're not done with fashion, but, um, interviewing is tricky because you have to be prepared and know what your next question is, but you also have to be present and like improv while it's happening. It's flow. It's really flow. I think some of the most sort of the biggest flow states I've ever experienced in my life are when I'm interviewing and it's, and that's why I like doing it. And I'm sure it's part of the reason you like doing it as well. It's like, it requires total presence. And the minute you leave the room mentally, I mean, it happens, obviously we're just human, but trying to get back there is like, um, I feel like you've kind of answered my question about books that have impacted you unless there was anything else that you wanted to bring up. Well, the one that I'm currently reading and that has made the most impact on my work is Never Split the Difference, for sure. Yeah, um, and I will say, actually, I've been meaning to say in in that in that vein, I haven't read that book, but I have read. Do you know the Art of Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg? Very similar. I feel like I don't know if what era the book you're reading was written in, but I think Marshall Rosenberg's book was written a while ago, a few decades ago, and he's also a negotiator, like a for the you know for for the UN or something. I'm not sure. And it's similar thing, like learning how to frame communication in a way where you don't put the other person like immediately on the defense. Um, because so much of how we phrase our questioning is like aggressive without us realizing and attack combative. And it doesn't get you. You don't even people, when people are actually on the defense, they're not going to give you the answer you're looking for. So it's a good skill for relationships. It's a good skill for interviews, like skill for life. We don't learn how to communicate and use our words. And we should, we should, because we spend a lot of our lives in anguish, like about why we can't, why we're butting heads with people in every facet of our lives from love to work to whatever else. So someone recommended that to me a long time ago and it was a good one. I probably need to revisit it. Um, um, have you seen Couples Therapy, that show on Showtime? Yes, I haven't. Oh my it's God. One of the I keep forgetting. Like everyone said, it will get men- mentioned to me every now and then, and then I forget. And then it's a good one. It's a really interesting case study. I've actually never seen it. I've only ever seen like three minute clips at a time, which is like the problem with short form media. But <laughs> but it's super interesting because you're right. We're not told how to communicate, and the way our brain is operating is different from how another person is receiving us. You know. And like for these two people in therapy, you know, to these two completely different people, these different entities to try to make their lives make sense and make their world come together, even though they have totally different like life experiences and having a therapist trying to help them understand each other. Like sometimes it's like they're speaking different languages. 100%. And it's easy to hear when you're listening to it, but when you're in it, you know, you can't, 
it's so hard to pick yourself out of that. I'm listening to a podcast like that with couples about money specifically, so, which is just fascinating because what, the emotional load that comes into talking about money is like such a complex dynamic. Um, anyway, I'm conscious of your time because you were getting ready as we started the interview and I'm sure you got somewhere to go. It is actually only 9am in New York. So I'm impressed that you brought this level of lucidity to the podcast at this time, but also would expect nothing less, Rachel. Somebody else told me that I interviewed, she was a fashion journalist in the eighties. She said, um, the interview is only as good as the guest is. Yeah. She said, uh, that she was interviewing Valentino and he said to her, Maybe it wasn't in Valentino, don't quote me, but she was interviewing a major designer and he said, well, let's hurry up. This better be good. And she said, well, it's only going to be as good as you are. So it's like, it, it, it really helps to make the, it's, it's really great advice in terms of, she's like, you can't turn water into wine. If the guest doesn't show up, like you, you, it's really hard to make a good interview out of nothing. They have to be as equal of a participant as you are. Um, it's like when you have sex with somebody and they're just like sitting there, it's like, I can't do <laughs> like, this on my own. Yeah, like you got to show up too, you know? And so, so yeah, that's why I wanted to like dignify um, like this meeting this morning because I know the importance of the guest also being present. Well, I very much appreciate you making the time and showing up in, in every sense. And um, I hope you have a wonderful New York day ahead. I'm sure it's jam-packed as New York days tend to be. Um, and yeah, thank you again for sharing your work. I think I'm really inspired by the way that you're doing it as much as what you're actually doing. And I think it's really important for people to see alternative systems and models for, for sharing creative work, because I think a lot of people are disillusioned by the whole thing right now. And, it, and it's really helpful to see someone who's like brave enough to be like, fuck that. I'm not doing it like that. This is how I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. so I wish you plenty of success with, um, I mean, I'm excited to see who you've got coming up next. <laughs>